To begin. Are you watching closely? To begin. Clytus, I'm bored. How to start? What plaything can you offer me today? In Life Itself, a memoir, Roger Ebert begins. I was born inside the movie of my life. I was born a poor black child. The visuals were before me. I was born in it. The audio surrounded me. Molded by it. The plot unfolded inevitably, but not necessarily. I don't remember how I got into the movie, but it continues to entertain me. We all are born with a certain package. We are who we are. Where we were born, who we were born as, how we were raised. We're kind of stuck inside that person. And the purpose of civilization and growth is to be able to reach out and empathize a little bit with other people. And for me, the movies are like a machine that generates empathy. It lets you understand a little bit more about different hopes, aspirations, dreams, and fears. It helps us to identify with the people who are sharing this journey with us. Welcome to The First Syllable, the podcast where, for the most part, it's me, Professor Robert E.G. Black, who you might know from various Movies by Minutes podcasts. You can find links to all those at lemmingdrops.com. I'm trying to piece together a screenplay idea, bit by bit. The problem is, the notion I have of what that is going to be is a screenplay that references as many time loop stories as it can in many, many ways. But also, I needed enough of a story that makes it mine. The latest big notes I have from just last night as I'm recording this are stuff that's going to make it kind of mine, while also playing into some references. First, an update overall. Currently, my main notes file, which has things sorted into various topics, is 7,339 words. My unsorted file is currently at 12,953. That's a lot. My latest separate notes file, which was the seventh on my phone, is 1,372 words. And then currently I have a file on my phone number eight, which probably has a couple hundred words. So that puts it close to 22,000 words of notes and quotes and names and times and situations. Which I believe I looked this up and is that's now significantly longer than a lot of screenplays are. So a big part of my process once I'm in the actual writing phase is that I'm going to have too much and we'll have to break it down and remove things. But that's okay, because so many things have more notes than they probably should. If someone has a dog, I wrote down the name. If there's multiple characters with some basic names, or an interesting name even, I grab that and put it in my notes. If there's a specific time that someone references regarding the plot, then I write that down. And then lines of dialogue. Some of those lines of dialogue are deliberately redundant. A lot of what I call the God Day bit where proving you're in a time loop by showing how much you know about everyone who's nearby. Given my setup is not in a small town or a geographically isolated location, there's a lot of characters, a lot of people around, so I can use a lot of the names, throw them in in different scenes. We don't have to get to know all the extras as long as we know that Connor, or someone else in the loop, knows. The thing I had recently, just yesterday, was a couple ideas. One's fairly big, because... I've said I know what the opening scene is, I know what the final scene is, though some of the details will change along the way. I know the general situation of the opening scene and the closing scene. And so far I didn't know what the opening line was, I don't think. I knew what the scene was, and I knew it involved some basic conversation. 
but I need the voiceover to start immediately. Because I want the voiceover to feel like the usual voiceover that I complain about. You know, just last week, I was complaining about that. The voiceover that's just a few lines at the beginning of the movie and then goes away. I want it to feel like that. And I want it to feel generic. And then immediately become something far less generic. Where it is, it's like the Ferris Bueller version. Where he has to pause and talk to the audience because that's who he is. He needs to comment on what's happening. And Connor's going to be like that. And because of the note I suggested, I think this was last week, the week before, other characters, once they're in the loop, can do the same thing. And so it becomes this thing where the characters are interacting with us as if they know none of this is real. But then it's also real for them. And I want to play up the artifice so much that we forget about it. We forget that it's artificial. It's one of the things I have to voice over that shows up at the beginning and maybe the end of the movie and is gone for 95% of it, is that that makes it feel artificial to me. Like, they couldn't figure out how to get this opening scene just right. Same thing when we have, like, outside of a spy movie, the name of the city where you're going on the screen. We don't need that. If we can't get that from context clues, it's not an important context. But then playing on the part I haven't quite figured out, but have been leaning into, I said I think it's possible Connor came home early, maybe he's been home for a little while, a month or more, I don't know, because I think I've settled on it's his father who died, which is sort of a reference to repeaters and to the map of Tiny Perfect Things, except we're not seeing the father dying. This is something that happened recently, but as our story begins, it's not that recent for Connor. He's got another two years on past his mother, who he will visit at some point in the story, but because of that weird timing, I like the idea of this opening line being talking about his father dying. And so it sets up this theme immediately about death. Never mind that the first scene literally ends in death and Connor may be avoiding a different death. I don't know how the police shooting is going to go in the first iteration we see. Maybe it'd be two deaths. I don't know. Maybe the police are distracted by the car and so they don't. There is no death in that sense. Actually, I'm not sure how those two connect physically like geographically, how close are those two incidents? Wouldn't those police be distracted by the crash? Okay, I got to think on that one. But the way I wrote it down in my notes is, I remember when my father died, watching him go from this person that was such a big part of my life to this empty husk that used to be that person. A collection of tissue and chemicals that had only a moment earlier been alive. So we get like that line, and then maybe he says something to Cass, because this is them on their date, and we get some of their conversation. I don't know the detail of that conversation yet. And then it comes back to his voiceover, maybe an aside during their conversation. And then that point I've talked about before where he gets up from the table and steps away just before the car hits. And then he has to explain to us. And this is where it becomes more obvious this voiceover is going to be a constant part and it is a conversation between us and the main character. One-sided conversation, but still a conversation where he's monologuing for us. Actually, I think it's not fair to call it a monologue. I think I was right the first time. It's a one-sided conversation. He wants us to respond but not by talking necessarily, but by feeling something. And he's showing, he's starting his story with this darkest moment, this moment where he realized he can't keep trying to save Cass because it doesn't work. And I think regarding the father dying, his relationship with his father might be something I can crib. I haven't reread it again recently, but something I can crib from Day Trippers, which got into my head in regards to this next note because I was debating over some terminology. Because I also put this other thing that I thought of, like, right as I was about to fall asleep last night, I had this moment, and I put it in my notes. I had a little bit of shorthand, because I was half asleep writing this down, but basically, a god day bit at one point in the story. He mentions that one character 
maybe sitting at the diner or the cafe or whatever, has cancer and his wife doesn't know it. But the wife is sitting right there. It's like taking that moment from Groundhog Day and blowing it up. It's not, oh, she's having second thoughts. It's, no, he's dying. And the guy hasn't told his wife yet. And then he has to explain to us, as an aside, oh, I only know that because, you know, I got drunk with him one night and he told me that. And then he justifies also using this in this moment because that wife won't know what he said. So it doesn't matter what he says. But then the more he tries to justify being able to use this information he knows about these people in order to prove that he's in this time loop to his friends or to whomever it is in this iteration, the more he sounds like what Des sounded like when Des was first in the loop with him and would just do whatever because there were no consequences and did worse things than Connor did. And in my notes, I said this is the same as Des's POV re daytimers. And it was like, as I was typing it, I, I'm like, yeah, no, that works. Calling them daytimers is fun. And then briefly, I was like, oh, maybe they're day trippers. I'm like, no, day tripper is more what Connor is and what Des is when he's in the loop and whatever. Daytimer makes more sense. I was checking on the term and it was a radio thing specifically. I mean, I'm using it just because it sounds cool, but it was a radio thing where it's a radio station that only, like a local AM station that only airs stuff during the day. They didn't do night coverage because they didn't think anybody would be listening. And it was cheaper that way. So in this case, the daytimer then is these people who are just going through their day normally and don't realize it's going to reset. But the thing is, in the moment of trying to justify his revealing publicly that this guy has cancer, Connor's leaning a little into what Des did, which at this point in the story, Des wouldn't remember. And then maybe Connor has to kind of make up with Des, and Des doesn't even know what the problem is. And so Connor has to explain to him, and maybe that's when we get a flashback to when Des was in the loop the first time. Maybe that's somewhere near the end of the story where now he's going to bring Des back in and bring T in and bring Ro in and actually save Cass and get to midnight for the last time. So he has to face the fact that some of what he does might not feel as bad in the moment, but arguably is just as bad as some of the stuff Des did. Or neither is that bad. It's that sort of equalization of different levels, which brings him and Des back together as friends and sets us onto the path to the end of the story. Cut! The, uh, it's a past stuff that dreams are made of. You're still here? It's over, Johnny. It's over? It's over! Nothing is over! Go home. Nothing! You just don't turn it off! Go. 